This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew. <laughs> Werewolf in London. That's. I mean, this so part of this book takes place in London. Mm-hmm. So and the, there's a wolf in. There's a wolf in. Is this? Is there a wolf in this? See, because I watched that Hulu show, The Bear, and like the bear, I guess, is like a metaphor or something. And now this book that you read for our book podcast, Overdue, where one of us reads a book every week and tells the other person about it, is called Wolf Hall. And so now I don't know whether to expect a, a wolf or not, or if it's going to be some kind of metaphor, or if it's just named after wolves, but it is not affiliated with them in any other way. Uh, <laughs> so can you, first question, can you tell me if there's literal wolves in this? Uh, no, not really ever. Okay, great. Metaphorical wolves, like they're coming for you, like a, like you're in the, the the hall and the hungry wolves are chasing you, like Duran Duran. I'm, I appreciate how hard you're trying to sell this for me, but I'm just not interested anymore. (laughs) Okay. See you later. I'll just talk into this mic for a little while and we'll be good. Our contractual obligations will be met. Mm -hmm. And you wake me up when there's wolves. Yeah, it's named so Wolf Hall is a book that I read. It's by Hilary Mantel, and it's named after a place, mm-hmm. uh, not a place with wolves, though. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, it's named after where Jane Seymour, one of the queens of England, where her family had a house called Wolf Hall. Or mm-hmm. Wolf Hall, mm-hmm. um, and by the end of the book, our main character Thomas Cromwell is very excited to go there. Tommy but Cromie, but I think ooh, can we call can we call him that? We should call him Tommy Cromie. <laughs> uh, but I think that metaphorically, he's in Wolf Hall for a good part of this book because he's mm-hmm. in it with the with the guys doing the things in the politics <laughs> and everybody's got ambitions mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's history. So you know how parts of it are going to go, but you don't know how all of it's going to go. Cause Hillary's filling in the blanks. Yeah. Historical fiction, baby. Yes. Yeah, so uh, this is again, we'll follow Hillary Mantel. Uh, I listened to, Two large portions of the audiobook by Simon Slater. Um, I enjoyed it. His voices are good. That's all I can. I can't say much more. <laughs> about I mean, the, if you're doing an actual British book by a British author about British people, and you're not just kind of leaning into like British to make people sound like fancy or old timey or something, like if you get actual British voices, I feel like that's audiobook easy mode. Because you're just gonna you're just gonna sound fancy to any any 
tin-eared American, you know what I mean? And his Cardinal Wolsey sort of sat, is it like decadent bot from Futurama? What's that bot that's just like a oh, hedonism bot? With, hedonism bot. He sort yeah. of his Wolsey sort of sounds like hedonism bot, <laughs> which is really making me laugh. Um and yeah, some of the voices are pretty good. Uh and I actually I will as we get into the style of the book a little later, I'll point out a spot where it actually really helped to be hearing portions of this book. I did read with my eyes parts of it as well, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> this was uh, a Patreon recommendation from Esther. Thank you, Esther, who said, this book made a big impression on me when I read it a few years ago. This is saying something because by now I've read so many books that I'm not so easily enraptured anymore as when I was a teenager or student. Then everything felt new. <laughs> Esther's writing us a little novel here. Uh, it's a solid historical novel, a genre that I still love. The ones I love best are the ones that let me experience the past as if I'm actually in it. And this book is a masterpiece in that regard. It won the Booker Prize. Uh, it's set in Tudor, England, which I was a bit reluctant about uh, because this time in history is somewhat exploited by now for historical novels, I think. There's this a whole one... show called The Tudors, right? Where yeah. they were all sexy. When did that Show, that was like a mid two thousands. They were putting that. They were putting ads for that thing on buses. Like mm-hmm. that show was everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sexy tutors. Mm-hmm. Oh, because it had Henry Cavill. It had Superman in it. Yeah, mm-hmm. but, but pre Superman. Yes, I think so. You're right. Yeah, maybe mm-hmm. something. Okay. Anyway, um, yeah. So Esther really liked the book. Recommended it to us, and I read it. And I never read it before, but I was taking the subway a lot when this book came out and lots of people had copies of it like lots it was a it was a (laughs) book you saw people reading Mm -hmm. it felt like a big deal Mm -hmm. uh also it's a big book well and it came out in 2009 so this would this probably would have been before like smartphones and kindles would have like super rendered. ubiquitous, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you were more likely to see a book cover on the subway than you might be these these days with the people with their newfangled technology, you know. And this one, you know what I mean, we're just like not talking to each other anymore because oh we're God. on our phones so much. <laughs> me going up to somebody reading Wolf Hall on the train, slapping out of their hands. Talk to me like I'm a human. It's <laughs> not reading about wolves. Um, but I don't really know anything about the author, Andrew. Can you educate me? Dame Hilary Mary Mantell, born 1952. She's a British fiction writer and memoirist with a specialty in historical fiction. Uh, she's re- so you talked about how she'd received that Booker Prize, right? She's she's won it twice, and she's the first woman who to do that, and like the fourth person ever. <laughs> wow! For the sequel yeah. to this book, mm-hmm. who said mm-hmm. sequels are overrated? Yeah, not not us. Nope. No sophomore slump for We've Hillary. We've never said that. <laughs> uh, so things to know about her. Uh, her biological father wasn't really part of her life. Uh, they live with someone named Jack Mantell, whose last name she adopted Okay, uh, a little bit later. Um, so she has, like, if you read pretty much any interview with her, her, like, relationship with her own body comes up. Uh, okay. She suffered from endometriosis. Oh yeah, endometriosis, uh, which Endo- is yes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a painful condition where cells uh, normally found inside the uterus grow outside of the uterus instead. That's not they don't go there, and that no. causes problems. Yeah, um, it's common because it is a you know pain based condition that primarily affects women and others with uteruses. It is commonly misdiagnosed or written off as nothing. 
Mm. Um, she underwent a surgical menopause in her late twenties to treat the condition, but it really like made her very aware of her own body. Like she was unable to like bear children after this operation that she had. It just has, you know, looms large over her work and, and her like self image. Um, sure. She, okay. she, stu- I don't, so I don't know if it comes up explicitly in this book, but it's just like a big thing that well, came it's up a, like multiple times when I was reading book about her, about yeah. how the most powerful man in England really wants a son and he keeps marrying and discarding women who won't give him one. Interesting. Um, interesting. So yeah, maybe uh, feelings about, uh, women's bodies and uh, who is able to control or help or live in them. Yeah, maybe mm-hmm. maybe that's something, maybe that's something. Uh, relevant here. Uh, she studied law at the London School of Economics and at the University of Sheffield, uh, worked as a social worker and at a department store early on. Um, so she didn't really start writing or she didn't start publishing novels until like the mid-1980s, but she was writing as early as 1974, um, she talked a little bit about about her like the beginnings of her writing career and why she gravitated to historical novels. Like she wanted to be a historian, and she, but she figured you know the ship sailed on that, so I'll do the next best thing. <laughs> um, and she says, uh, when I began writing in the 1970s, I thought of myself simply as a historical novelist. I can't do plots, I thought, so I will let history do them for me. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I write some kind of D and D campaign or something, that that's me, except with Final Fantasy games instead of history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, she just like starting in the mid nineteen eighties. Uh, Every day is Mother's Day is her first novel published in nineteen eighty five, and she just was publishing novels at a pretty steady pace since then. Um, but Wolf Hall was a thing that she wanted to work on for. A long time. Um, she says, as soon as I started writing, I knew this is what I'd been working towards. Uh, she says that confidence right at the beginning of having arrived where I should be. Uh, and yeah, she just, she talks a lot about her like passion for historical fiction, for, but, but also for like respecting the history at the root of the thing. Like she says she would never change a historical fact to make a story better. She said, um, I aim to make the fiction flexible so that it bends itself around the facts as we have them. Otherwise, I don't see the point. Nobody seems to understand that. Nobody seems to share my approach to historical fiction. Um, you could cut a much better shape if you were God, but as it is, I think the whole fascination and the skill is working with those incoherencies. Hmm. Yeah. So, like, the th- so the thing about Tommy Cromy is that he had been. <laughs> You know, in in histories of this era, he appears, he, like, does things. Like, he's a person who, like, is a mover and a shaker, but you don't really know much about, like, what happens to Tommy Crummy when he goes home, you know? Yeah. Are we Everyone's <laughs> saying this. Everyone is saying this. Yeah. Um, and she says, you know, of, of Cromwell, he started out from the wrong place. So what does he achieve every day? So what he does achieve every day seems like spitting in the eye of the pattern laid down. You have to understand the 16th century is a time when ambition was a dirty word because it was like being cheeky to God. Mm. So her fascination with Tommy Cromie. So she, what one, she loves historical fiction Two, She thinks Tommy Cromie super interesting because he is 
sort of rising beyond his circumstance and like taking stuff for himself at he's a, a time real, when that really uh, didn't happen. He's a real Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, I guess kind of Alexander His name Hamilton. is Tommy Cromie Cromwell. <laughs> I like in that, that Cromie is in quotes and that's what his friends call him. Hey, Cromie. Hey, Cromie. Get me a new wife, Cromie. Just, Fire the know, Pope. In a very like Hank Schrader gomi <laughs> sort of, hey Krami, hey. <laughs> she she says in her uh, acknowledgement about the um, whether or not she would make up a fact kind of thing. Um, in her acknowledgments at the end, above all, Dr. Mary Robertson, her business as a scholar has been with the facts of Cromwell's life, but she has encouraged me and lent me her expertise through the production of this fiction, put up with my fumbling speculations, and has and been kind enough to recognize the portrait I have produced. So there's a lot of very specific word choice in there where she is like, this is a guy that I wrote <laughs> that is based on a bunch of facts that I haven't contradicted. Well, because she's very conscious of how when historical fiction goes through and fills in the the gaps on somebody, that that like popular image of that person can then get sucked up back into the history and... <laughs> Well, and influence like how people view that that the the historical figure. So yeah, she just seems to be very like conscious of how that like give and take works, and wanting very much to do her own thing while also trying not to like disturb a fragile historical ecosystem. Sure, <laughs> which is also like a very well trod one. But mm-hmm. she did. I think you may have read the same article. She was uh, this was like a Guardian piece. There are a couple, yeah, there was one Guardian one that was an interview with her. There's one Guardian piece that she wrote. Yeah. And then there's a super long interview in the Paris Review that I read, too. Okay. There's just, like, a lot of stuff out there. She's a prolific interviewer. The one about how um, Henry VIII's, like, uh, rise to the throne, like, the the 500th anniversary of it was 2009. Mm -hmm. And she kind of, like, the quotes where she's, like, she thought someone else would have gotten to Cromwell by the time that she wrote this book. And, like, nobody wrote a Cromwell book before she did. And she's, like, okay, Mm -hmm. I guess I'll write it. Like, Mm -hmm. she thought the idea was sound enough. uh, This guy was ripe enough for reinvention in, in the fictional realm that... Someone would have done it, and she yeah. just got there first. There's not yeah. a not a Tommy Cromie land grab as yeah. she might have expected, and it ended up being she'd been writing for decades before yeah. this book came out in 2009. But she talks about it being like a big moment for her. Uh, she says, "I had reasonably healthy sales with Beyond Black, which is another book of hers, uh, and that was for the first time I'd had good reviews always, but no sales." <laughs> and I felt very much like a niche product, you know, a very, uh, very much a minority interest. Hmm. Um, but yeah, since then she's, she's become a, uh, so this, this book had a sequel, uh, bring up the bodies in 2012 and the mirror and the light, which came out in 2020, both pretty well reviewed. I think this, the worst ding on the last one is that it's just super long. <laughs> Yeah. Which I get as somebody yeah. who like reads books on a schedule for a podcast. Like <laughs> yeah. I know I know what it feels like to get to a long one. Um she's the the most interesting controversy that she's involved in, and the one that I think is funniest, and I think she probably also thinks is funniest, is in twenty fourteen when she wrote a short story fantasizing about the murder of Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> 
what? And some people in like, I guess like parliament or something like, you know, former Thatcher allies were like calling for a police investigation into this. And she's like, it was very funny to me that people were calling for a police investigation into the fictional murder of an already dead woman. Oh my God. (laughs) That's the power Um, of prose. Also said things of like kick the, the, hive of the royals and of the catholic church like she just these are these are power structures that she is happy to critique does i don't want to say she doesn't have respect for them but she's just very she's not willing to stand back and like not say anything about them when they do objectively absurd (laughs) and bad things so Good for her. Yeah, it seems like cool lady. She seems very. She's up right until three or four in the morning. Just you know, even though she's, I think she is seventy. She was pushing seventy when you know when the last of these Wolf Hall books came out, and now she is seventy, and she just still she's still trucking. Did you see? I didn't. I I don't expect you to have an answer to this. Did you see anything on if they're going to adapt the third? book because i think i saw that the the first two books were part of the tv series mm-hmm. maybe i could be wrong about that but i i do not know okay. no, I, I though i would be surprised if something is yeah the first profitable two. that <laughs> that either the either an adaptation would happen or i don't I'd like i you'd have to tell me about the the end of this book i feel like the ends of the of the previous books like they have clear cutoffs where there's clearly more stuff to do but they also are they're each their own self-contained thing so maybe it's okay that the third one wasn't out when they were doing that adaptation yeah i don't know i'm talking a lot for somebody who doesn't know anything about no that's and this is all very helpful um that's podcasting i had i had a long book to read so i'm glad that you read all the stuff she said about the book Mm -hmm. that she wrote Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) uh Uh, well so yeah Let's take a break, and then I will tell you about uh, the wolves in the hall. <laughs> now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Andrew, how's, Greg, your, how's your mind? Bad. <laughs> okay. Usually. <laughs> Usually. Is it something you think about taking care of? I mean, I think about it, but mm. listen, here's the thing about having a having bad brain mm. is the brain also is the thing that you have to use to think about fixing your bad brain. So it's kind of a it's you're yeah. kind of you're kind of screwed before you even start. Yeah, it's really tough to to fix a thing with itself or to mm-hmm. care for a thing. Not even necessarily fix, but just it's like, like if your car is burning oil and you're like, well, this seems like a you thing to figure out, car. <laughs> Don't don't let your car or your mind do that. Uh, there are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, things like learning new languages or taking power naps. There's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, I know people who've used BetterHelp. It fits into their lives and into their routines uh, because it is online therapy that offers video, phone, and chat-only therapy sessions, so you can schedule them as you need to, and you don't have to talk to a person face-to-face if you don't want to. I don't know how that maps to the burning car analogy, but like, if you don't want to talk to the mechanic, you could like text him. I think that's. I don't think you need to do any mapping. Like that's pretty clear. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, great. Um, and I think in general, folks uh, who are having trouble 
like working on their mind only with their own mind could maybe benefit from someone to talk to uh, in therapy. I I think it is a good thing that if you are therapy, interested in, you should try Therapy is it. good. Yeah. We're, we don't want to get political, but we think therapy is good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and as I said, BetterHelp is online therapy that you can use. It's more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Uh, I have a call to action here. Andrew, Craig. our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash overdue. That's betterhelp.com slash overdue. Care for your car as if it care for your mind as if it were your car with better help. <laughs> Andrew, what do you know about Tommy Crommy? What <laughs> virtually I, nothing. <laughs> okay. So like this is something I'm interested in. I came into this book knowing that it was about uh, Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn, Thomas More, Tommy Crommy. There's so many Thomases in this book. I'm so grateful mm-hmm. that you coined Tommy Crommy. Tommy Crommy. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm here for. Yeah. <laughs> when I can't read the book, I can at least <laughs> see a name and come up with something that the person in question would absolutely not have wanted to be called in a million years. Uh, and, <laughs> and it's just like, I, so I, you know, I went through the American public school system, so I have a very shallow knowledge of of what happened during. I am this time I am stealing period. this joke from somewhere. I don't remember where, so forgive me. I'm sure somebody in our Discord server will know <laughs> the second they hear it. But England is just the empty husk that America was born from, and that's really all you need to know. About mm, it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> At least that that was the that was it in our education. It's like we kick their butts one oh. really big time, and then another later time that we didn't spend as much effort on, and then after that, and then I don't know. We just kind of bumbled through until we get to the world wars when we the, when we are friends. The parts of this that that light up some synapses in my brain are all of the like I've worked really hard in my Euro history class in high school to get a good AP score because I thought that that was something and so like there's a lot of random names from the renaissance dislodged in my brain mm-hmm. like I know that Erasmus is the prince of humanism do I really know what that actually means <laughs> no I wrote it on an index card so I could pass a test like mm-hmm. a doofus but here mm-hmm. I am like a Nathan Fielder character <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so like all of the people that populate this book or many of the people that populate this book are like floating around in the punch bowl of my mind um but i don't really know how they all go together and i haven't consumed a lot of tudor media i never watched sexy tutors no i've not like i've not watched sexy sexy tutors i just generally don't find the Royals super fascinating sure. as, a, as a topic, just like whether you're talking about their modern incarnation or anything or, else. Yeah. Yeah. Past incarnations. And and that's not to say that it's not a, <laughs> an interesting <laughs> field of study. It's just not something that's ever see. Here's see. Here's why my thing is Roman history is because oh. you still are talking about like bewaring, being aware of the Ides and like Caesar and like columns and all that stuff. Still talking about it. <laughs> Nobody 
is just out making analogies about Tudor England for a general audience. <laughs> like, I feel oh. like the metaphors aren't as deeply rooted. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. It isn't. Okay. I, I can't. So I don't, I'm not saying that's why I like one more than the other. It's just, just like when I was trying to work backwards to a justification, that's kind of where my brain yeah. got to. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and I'm also familiar with, and I do think that this book is explicitly in conversation with the play A Man for All Seasons. Little by, Caesar's Pizza? Like, there's no Little Tudor Pizza. Big Tudor's Pizza. Let's big, get it going. Big Tudor's Pizza. Anyway, I apologize. There's a lot of two-for deals on the Big Tudor's menu. Ooh, two-for Tudor's. Hey, it's mm-hmm. a Tudor's two-for over here on Tuesday. But then, but then as soon as one of their pizzas gave somebody indigestion you would get a lot of oh, negative no. media coverage about tutor oh tutors, no and the it would and the and bologna pizza oh, from bless. the tutors <laughs> the and bachovis you were saying something about the book Every Before pizza we has were coming eight slices up our, for Henry the Eighth. Um, <laughs> our tutor theme, <laughs> one for each wife. Uh, a Man for All Seasons is a play by Robert Bolt. It was also made into a film. Uh, I was recently, a few months ago, like sitting in on rehearsals for production of that play. I've read it before, and that's the one that is like, oh, remember in the 20th century when the Catholic Church canonized Thomas More as a saint for being a martyr for sticking up for the fact that Henry VIII shouldn't have been allowed to get remarried. Um, <laughs> remember that guy who was this big humanist and we all loved him and he, sure, he thought every Protestant was a heretic and may or may not have led a really sat, like severe burning campaign that is depicted in mm-hmm. this book. Um, mm-hmm. He's a real nice guy who lived his principles all the way to his death. Uh, and in that play, Thomas Cromwell is like a snake got turned into a person. Like the snake mm-hmm. from the Garden of Eden is now mm-hmm. a person mm-hmm. in that play. He's just an evil guy whose job is to be evil. And he loves being evil. Mm-hmm. And enter Hillary Mantel and is like, what if he wasn't as evil? What if he, what if he wasn't evil? What or if, if was- at least he was like... A charismatic villain that you could root for a little what bit. What if he was kind of a lovable family man? What if he was Iago the parrot from Aladdin and he was kind of ba- a bad guy, but <laughs> no. he also was a cool He's hang? way more likable than Iago the parrot. I do yeah. find Iago the parrot entertaining, mm-hmm. but the depiction of Tommy Crommy in this book is of a man who loves his wife and his kids and his, his wa- one his one wife his <laughs> that he has his one wife mm-hmm. um he does flirt with a couple of characters of historical note yeah i mean he's married not buried and his <laughs> wow i'd never heard that one before <laughs> um and that's a little bit of the i think that's Mantel filling in some blanks of like maybe suggesting some flirty crushing stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what historical record there is for Crommy like having it for Jane Seymour or like Mary Boleyn makes a pass at him at one point. He seems mm-hmm. interested. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's like happening. 
the the Cromwell as a family man who in particular it is the fact that you know uh plague takes his wife and daughters after mm-hmm. like maybe maybe 20% of the book um when you get a sense that he does like love them earnestly uh and he does have a son Gregory and then he has like a bunch of other kids that he just like adopts over the course of the book mm-hmm. where he has like Rafe and he has his nephew Richard I think who may or may not be related to the king and he's got other like daughters of relations that are living in yeah. his house I mean you're in the 16th century like having having kids was really a, a numbers game mm-hmm. back then that's so. true and he's a mm-hmm. guy with at that point in his career he's a guy with means he has a house people can come and stay there so mm-hmm. a, a thing that happens throughout this book is that like people in his life whose lives are you know going off the rails will be like will you take care of my kid like that is a thing that they think to say to thomas cromwell mm-hmm. and the previous depictions of him in as much as there have been any are like, why I wouldn't trust that guy with like a pen. He's going to stab me with it. Like mm-hmm. he's a monster. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is, this is what, why nobody called him Tommy Crummy before now, because that's just, it's makes him too, it makes him too affable. Like, no, <laughs> Tommy like, Crummy's not going to stab you. Crummy. Are you kidding? Now I do need Crummy to from work. <laughs> <laughs> we all love Crommy. He yeah. loves it when we push him around and make fun of his ties. Mm-hmm. He's never going to come back and uh, like dox us. Um, no, 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 no. Because I think basically like Crom- Cromwell would be really into doxing. Um, mm-hmm. He is no, definitely in the, in the day. In, in those days, it was just like stapling a document of, <laughs> with somebody's address on it, like up on a bunch of pubs or whatever. <laughs> so Cromwell has definitely. In his life, not depicted like necessarily on screen in the book, but he has killed people. He has done untoward things. He has probably, but it's never really talked about too much, uh, you know, slept around and maybe fathered some children he's not caring for. Cool. Uh, he loves to bet. He has a bit of a bet. It's not a not a like a Michael Jordan betting vice, but he does like to bet. <laughs> Um, he does help orchestrate a lot of kind of plundering and he bullies people, uh, and he sort of kind of comes to the conclusion that with the dissemination of printing presses and and things like that, that there's a lot more material to charge people with treason with. Oh, Uh, it's Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there. Uh, he basically talks like there's a part where they're revising the Treason Act in England. Uh-huh. It says when the last Treason Act was made, no one could circulate their words in a printed book or bill because printed books were not thought of. He feels a moment of jealousy toward the dead, to those who served kings in slower times than these. Nowadays, the products of some bought or poisoned brain can be disseminated through Europe in a month. So yeah, just Twitter, a but 500 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's the one being like, we can prosecute people for their tweets. Mm-hmm. Like he comes, he comes up with that idea. I just love that we get, we get to, and and this, the, I, I, I think we can blame tech bros for this, but we get to 2009 and there are a bunch of 
guys on cocaine in a room being like, <laughs> well, disrupting communication has always been an unalloyed good. Like that's, <laughs> that's. And they're reading this book being like, I like this Tommy Crommy guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, uh, he is a very shrewd guy. Thomas Cromus. Thomas Cromus. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, what is this? This is a, an explanation of how he works. So later in the book, I'll give us a plot summary at some point, but like, I don't as, even know if we, you talked about how long this book was. And when you got to a stop, when you get to a stopping point with this, I think we yeah. can, we like, can zoom out. Yeah. I don't even know that we need to do a plot thing because the book is so long. So maybe we just do like no plot only vibes, but it's it, obviously Tommy Crommy <laughs> is the central figure in yeah. here. So tell me more about how Tommy Crommy hit you. And because, I mean, it's clear that Mantel loves Tommy Crommy to the point like, well, and, and, and I'm saying that in a, like, oh. she finds this character fascinating to write about and like spending time with him yes. and likes like inventing stuff. Yeah, it's not sure. a, it, cause uh, people have made the. Why are you yeah. whitewashing Tommy Crommy? Well, no, people people have made the the like, oh, she's in love with this character and she's taken so long on this last book because she doesn't want to kill this guy who she <laughs> loves so much. Like people people have made that that worse version of the ar- ar- argument. So I want to make it clear that that's not what I'm making. Oh, sure. But sure. she's like she finds this guy the most interesting part of this historical period. And I'm sure that comes through in the book. So, yeah, yeah let's let's spend some more time with Tommy. Crummy. OK, sure. Um, what, uh, there's one, there's two different block quotes that I'll kind of read here. Okay. One is a little later in the book. Uh, I'll explain how he gets here, but Cromwell is hanging out with Henry VIII. He's like one of his most trusted advisors. Um, and this is a little block about how he relates to the king. Uh, Listen to this, Andrew, tell me. That you've never had a boss like this. Okay. The king is a complainer too. He has a headache. The Duke of Mm -hmm. Suffolk is stupid. The -hmm. weather is too warm for the time of year. The country's going to the dogs. He's anxious too, afraid of spells and of people thinking bad thoughts about him in any specific or unspecific way. The more anxious the king becomes, the more tranquil becomes his new servant. That's Cromwell. The more hopeful, the more staunch. And the more the king becomes his, uh, the more the king snips and carps, the more do his petitioners seek out the company of Cromwell, so unfailing in his amiable courtesy. So he's got this thing where he's like really good at listening to the king, Mm -hmm. really good at balancing the king's moods. Mm hmm. And then on the flip side, nobody likes this complaining, mad, you know, sex crazed king. So they're all going to come to the nice Cromwell guy Mm -hmm. and then he can traffic in all their information. Mm -hmm. Truly a Jared Kushner of the the 16th century. (laughs) Jared Kushner wishes. (laughs) My God. He wishes he could be Tommy Cromie. The the other thing, uh, I don't remember. I think this is this is just Mantel talking. I don't think this is someone. a character speaking about Cromwell. Uh, he never lives in a single reality, but in a shifting shadow mesh of diplomatic possibilities. While he is doing his best to keep the king married to Queen Catherine and her Spanish imperial family by begging Henry to forget his scruples, he will also plan for an alternate world in which the king's scruples must be heeded and the marriage to Catherine is void. And that is Cromwell learning from 
Cardinal Wolsey, who he spends the first half of the book working for. I think that passage may even be more about Wolsey than Cromwell, but it like it explains this worldview that is very uh, pragmatic, not motivated by ambition. Mm-hmm. But mo- but also motivated by that part of ambition that's like, well, let's just get things done, man. Like we don't. What are principles? I'm just gonna do stuff. <laughs> well, it's like ambition and then knowing how to use power once you've got it. It's like it, it, yeah, ugh. yeah. Lord, Lord, save me from people who don't know what to do with power when they have it. Like <laughs> uh-huh. G, G whiz. Uh huh. Jesus the, pleases. <laughs> I do. Uh, like I'll back up and just say like we don't need to do a full plot blow by blow because you could go read a history book you could go read a history book but or you could read this book and i think this book i I think this book is a great uh do you want to go read about history but you're like but you need a story to latch on to first like i do think this does that like this is when historical fiction works really well for me it is the like I need to go look up if that really happened. How did right, that happen? Yeah, it's the it's the boy. I need to jump down a Wikipedia hole about yeah, yes. about whatever subject this this book or show or movie or whatever is covering. It's a real real Chernobyl situation. <laughs> Truth, true. Yes. Um, the opening of this book, and this is something that I think in one of those articles, Mantel like is like this is when I knew this book was working. She like loved the first like page that she wrote. Um, it just says, uh, in quotes, so now get up. Feld days silent, he has fallen, knocked full length on the cobbles of the yard, his head turned sideways, his eyes are turned toward the gate, as if someone might arrive to help him out. One blow, properly placed, could kill him now. That is the first paragraph of this book. You don't know who she's talking about. I came into this book not really knowing what the deal was, not knowing that it was exclusively a Cromwell book. <laughs> Like, uh-huh. I kept waiting for it to be an ensemble historical tale. Or, like, a book with wolves in it. Also like that. real wolves. Um, and she really waits a long time to even drop his first name. Mm-hmm. And she just uses this he in addition to the other characters that are in the scene. Um, but, like, the first time you meet this character, he, he's a little kid and his ability you know, his abusive dad has beaten the crap out of him. Um, and the fact that over the course of this book, he moves from this like very low class. Um, he runs away. He, uh, winds up working. He gets, he gets his law degree or whatever he needs to do. I don't think he takes the bar. It's England in the 1500s. I don't think that's a thing. No, you um, just like the way to be a lawyer is just to go out well, into the street and yell, I'm a lawyer. Maybe. Well, it's maybe. that episode of The Office where Michael Scott <laughs> declares bankruptcy by <laughs> screaming it. Like, that's. <laughs> I think the phrase the bar does come from English l- law. Whatever. He just becomes, he becomes a lawyer and then he's working for Cardinal Wolsey, who's a very important dude. And then Wolsey becomes unimportant and he starts working for the king. And then by the end of this book, the king has invented a title to give him mm-hmm. a title that allows him to go into churches and be like, nah, you're not supporting the king enough. God, take all your money. Like he has come up with, he's gone from this working for his like in poverty as a child 
to the king's right-hand man and the king needs to invent power to give him. Like that is the mm-hmm. arc of this book. Cuz he doesn't have any power within the the rigid and pre-established structures of English society. Yes. A little w- yeah. That that is part of what what Mantell is drawn to about him, obviously. Well, yes, cuz he he is moving through ranks in a way that no one else in this world is. Mm-hmm. Um it's a very American tale. A little bit like Alexander Hamilton. You go, oh yes. <laughs> what year? What year is it? <laughs> we can't do this anymore. Um, but so he's this. Unless he, you were gonna write a rap about Thomas Cromwell, I need you to stop talking about Hamilton. My name is Thomas Crummy, and I'm here to say I am. I don't like the church in a major way. Yeah. <laughs> um. And so along this kind of rags to riches tale, we get a very... Okay, so the book uses this he thing that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, What I have in my notes here as in the not so royal he. Get it? That's funny. Um, I don't don't care who you are. That's just funny. That's just funny. Uh, This is from Mantell's Guardian piece. Wolf Hall attempts to duplicate not the historian's chronology, but the way memory works. The decision about the book was taken seconds before I began writing. This will now get up scene. The events were happening now in the present tense, unfolding as I watched, and what followed would be filtered through the main character's sensibility. He seemed to be occupying the same physical space as me with a slight ghostly overlap. It didn't make sense to call him Cromwell, as if he were somewhere across the room. I called him he. This device, though hardly of Joycean complexity, was not universally popular. Most (laughs) readers caught on quickly. Those who didn't complained. Um, And so there is this energy that the book has where any time you just, like, get he, uh, it is Cromwell. Is like a capital H he or is it just the word he? It's just anytime a character, if she is not in the middle of following up on like what the Duke of Norfolk is doing or what Dr. Dr. Crammer's doing, like if it's a new paragraph for like a new line of dialogue and she says he, she means Cromwell. Mm-hmm. And it's this very close third person. Like Cromwell's very observant. He, you know, he will, uh, observe people a lot uh mm-hmm. and and that's a re- why did i say that he will um, observe people a lot Jesus. i say that i say that about oh you my when God. you're just like when you're looking at something i'm like boy you're observing that a lot huh <laughs> he will <laughs> discern things about people based on how they're behaving and, and whatever so that like but we don't get an interiority or a perspective shift to anyone else other than him so there's this thing where like Whenever we get into a new chapter and she starts talking about another character, I'm always like, well, Cromwell's in the room. And then he does something. And then I'm like, okay, that's him. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a thing that I found was actually very helpful to have the audiobook for because the Cromwell voice is very distinctive. Mm -hmm. uh, And so you, you right away know, because some of the dialogue isn't in quotations. It's like, She's doing that thing where she kind of summarizes what characters are saying okay, a little bit, but they're also like, but it's not. And then he said, it's like, 
he's thinking this, blah, 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 and it just happens to be outside of quotation marks, so you know it's not the literal thing that transpired. Right. And in audiobook, that's actually pretty clean because the guy will still do uh, his voice a little bit, which is helpful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just has this feeling that, like, whatever happens in this world, Cromwell's involved. Like, right. that's the upshot of it. Mm-hmm. Um which is kind of neat, and and it was certainly not what I expected at all going into this book. Right. Um, I guess like the other, the so like part of this book is Cromwell's guys, for lack of a like, Cromie's boys. If you asked who Cromie's guys were, Cromie's boys, who are your guys? He'd say uh, Cardinal Wolsey mm-hmm. and King Henry. Those now, when you guys. say the when you say Cromie's guys. You, yeah, like these are the people who, what's his like? They're his friends, or no? It, it's rough to include the king in there because it's like, well, are they his friends? Are they the people who he relies upon for his power? Are they the people who he confers power upon with his super smart, handsome Tommy Cromie thing? The, it's the middle one, whatever you said. I was using it kind of in the <laughs> in the in the Mark Marin "Who Are Your Guys" sense. The I'm like, not familiar with. Oh, it's the like, what? Who are your favorite guys? Like, who are your? Who are the okay. people you derive influence from? I don't know that I've listened to that podcast in like a decade. Yeah, not, that's nothing fine. against Mark Maron. Yeah, he's a talented actor. Um, yeah. So he was in that Joker movie. Um, he was in. He was in Glow, I, which I know. Rip and Peace <laughs> Glow. Actually, what I really like for getting <laughs> canceled the season before it should have netflix thank you very much true um no his guys are the the people that confer power upon him and allow him to pursue heretofore uh unprecedented power so wolsey he actually has like a kinship with wolsey is the guy who's like the hedonist bot that i said he is uh he's the cardinal (laughs) i think he's also the lord chancellor of england so he's also in charge of all the courts and he has amassed like a lot of personal wealth. He still serves the Pope because he's a cardinal. And if we haven't said it already, Henry VIII wants to get divorced because his wife won't give him a son. And so he and the his wife is Queen Catherine, who has ties to, uh, I think, the Habsburg Empire. Maybe that's a little later. I don't remember. The empire that's like connected to Spain and Italy. And the Pope's involved and the Pope has to give approval. And also, he the king wants to boink this lady Anne Boleyn, and she's from France, sort of. And so it would be like a, an allyship with France, which is interesting to him, also. Okay, because if it weren't for that like political motive, I'm, I'm, if it were just the oh, she won't give me a son, it's like you're the you're the king. Like, can you not just impregnate somebody and say that it's well? So Hers. there are definitely characters in this book that are his spawn by other people and they kind of just go away, some of them. Um, some of them, uh, like, you know, Mary, Princess Mary, who is his daughter by Queen Catherine, she's going to become Queen Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, Elizabeth, the first daughter by Anne Boleyn, is going to become Queen Elizabeth. Uh, so that does wind up sort of working out for some of them in sort of ways because i don't think okay. it i don't know mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who get killed in british history for just being who they are do you um, think do you think up and up in heaven we're at the pearly gates imagine imagine this you're at the pearly gates okay and you're an old-timey guy yeah and like 
don't know, like getting divorced and eating pork and all the the rules were pretty strict. (laughs) Okay. And you see somebody coming up, like poking at their iPhone and they get, they get in, even though they got divorced and they did all the stuff you weren't allowed to do. Do you think, do you think the old timey guys are like, God, there goes the neighborhood. They're just letting anybody up here now. (sighs) I bet they are. Mm-hmm. I bet a bunch of them are like, I'm the king. I'm a literal <laughs> king. And they won't let me in because I divorced. Or they did let me in and they won't let me be in charge of it. <laughs> it sucks up here. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so that's like, that's the motivation. If you haven't studied your British history in a while, um, King Henry really wanted a son. There's an interesting little Henry. passage in this when at at some point um after cardinal wolsey has failed to deliver this divorce or actually uh king henry wants an annulment because catherine was his brother's wife and they actually take catherine to church court to mm-hmm. pr- to make her prove that she i don't it's something where they have to I would prove, watch I would watch this show by the way yeah church court church court they have to the, a bunch of men uh just decide that she didn't have sex with the king's brother who is now dead which if you've got a problem with men just deciding stuff i've got some i've got some bad news about history for you my dude uh and because of that decision henry can't get get his marriage annulled because they Mm -hmm. they did some biblical like you know close (laughs) reading to let him marry her in the first place Mm -hmm. and now that he wants out he's trapped in it um and the pope won't let him out and that's just imagining that scene from any sort of legal drama where you've got a bunch of like law students like Uh frantically through a bunch of books trying to find the statute that'll how to get away with murder but and it's and it's like that but (laughs) A bunch of monks with like eight Bibles trying to find a reason why the king can get married again. <laughs> okay, so that so that is like a okay. Knowing that that's what this book was about, I was like, I think if I were taking a little bit more time with this book, not reading mm-hmm. it for the show, mm-hmm. I might have lingered in the crummy family stuff a bit more <laughs> because a lot of that stuff is just about him taking care of the next generation like there are some occasional like attempts at you know getting people married to good partners and you know caring for this kind of menagerie of people that are living in his house um and i kind of kept turning the page wondering how mantel was going to not quite like generation remix the story i'd heard before but like what was her take (laughs) on these events knowing mm-hmm. that this is the Cromwell that she's working with and then when we finally meet more and he's kind of this jerk mm-hmm. he's just this guy's a saint and in this book he is not like he's he a real mean guy really missed an opportunity to say he's a saint and in this book he ain't but I <laughs> that's okay not everybody's quick on their feet he's just really a jerk in this book and even in the audiobook he's like yeah got Thomas Moore and it's like uh, it's like really driving home that from Cromwell's perspective uh, in particular he's this like nasty guy even though Cromwell sort of respects him anyway whatever 
Um, <laughs> but I was really, I found myself moving through the book to get to like, okay, I'm getting a lot of access to Cromwell and Henry together trying to plot this stuff out. I'm used to the kind of cut and dry, how did this affect Thomas More version of the story? Mm-hmm. Let's kind of get into it. And so there's interesting stuff where like, I don't know, they're looking at Arthurian legend mm-hmm. and they're coming up with like, well, did Jesus ever say there was a Pope? And if he didn't, <laughs> when did the, why does the Pope get to say who the king is in charge of? And they kind of backdoor their way into, at one point when he's talking about the act of succession, which very late in the book, Thomas More is in jail because he won't swear to the act of succession, which formalizes King Henry's uh, position as the head of the Church of England after they got rid of all the Catholic churches. And it also means that his daughters will be queen after him and everybody has to swear to it or else they go to jail. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I do like the the thought of like these people picking at the, like the the foundation that undergirds the entire church, but just for their own, just for stupid reasons. Yeah. That's what's really, I think that is one of the things that makes this, story of history kind of compelling mm-hmm. there's a couple really clear characters making decisions that reshape europe for centuries mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh but their reasons are very personal and awful well and, and we didn't talk about i i don't think we talked about this when we talked about mantel at the top of the show but another thing to to know about her is that she was catholic mm. sort of as a, as a child and teen but then re- renounce feels like too strong a word, but she wasn't a Catholic anymore. (laughs) Sure. But she talked, she's talked in interviews about still like having that cat, that Catholic guilt cop, like living inside her. And some of the criticism of her work has focused on how it could be perceived as biased toward the, the Catholic church. And I think we're, we're starting to get into a little bit of that territory here, maybe possibly. So I just wanted to bring up that it's been a thing that people have talked about. No, that's helpful to know because she also makes room for Cromwell to be kind of this like secret Protestant where early in the book, there are, there's talk of him like importing works by Tom by Luther. Um, there's this other Bible uh, that I'm forgetting the name of. Um, Bible two, uh, sequel to the Bible. It's a it's a particular trans. Oh, the Tyndale Bible. Mm. Um, <laughs> Is this? I, the, but the King James version happened after all this. Yes. Yeah. 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 I feel like um, that's like a 1600s thing. 1611. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, and the Tyndale Bible was kind of, was like, as depicted in this book in particular, like it's pretty scandalous in terms of like, you know, going against the, the Catholic Church and, and things like that. Um, and so, like, there's room in the margins for Cromwell to be this guy who is like, just well, he kind of he's kind of into that stuff, even if he's not like living it day to day. Partially because he's like, you know, I don't think he re- I don't think he has great feeling for the the Catholic Church as an institution, or at that mm-hmm. point in time, the Church as an institution. Mm-hmm. Though he does seem to hold the Bible and its teachings in some esteem. So it's you know you have to reconcile that with this guy. Yeah, um, I mean, I I think there there is room for like. 
you know, this Jesus guy seemed pretty cool, but I don't know why the church is keeping my boy Henry VIII yeah. from getting married <laughs> to his 19th wife. I just and, don't get it. And there's a lot of, you know, the book makes a lot of, takes a lot of pains to paint clear the political reasons and the political fallout for from any of these decisions, these marriage decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of the family stuff where he is attempting to get his like son and adopted sons like married to good people and stuff like that. I think some of that is supposed to resonate with this like, you know, the the top level narrative a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um when it was clicking for me that that that's what that was doing. But so mm-hmm. yeah, he's coming up he's this guy who's like, you know, helping the king craft laws that will allow the king do whatever he wants and mm-hmm. assure him his you know what he what he wants to have which is then complicated because Anne Boleyn doesn't give him a son either and that you know this book ends before that becomes a big problem but uh it's gonna but be it's a coming. problem um thanks history I, spoiler, <laughs> spoiler alert history yes and so you asked uh towards the beginning of our discussion like you know about this book's end and kind of where it leaves off. Yeah. So I did see a quote from her where, as she was writing this one, and she got to the Thomas More trial, which is like very different from A Man for All Seasons. If your like experience with Thomas More is that and like history books, like this is going to be different for you. Get ready. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the like immediate facts are the same, but the way it's handled is different. Uh. She realized that, like, oh, that's going to be the end of this book. Like, we're gonna we're gonna get to the point where Thomas More is dead. We've gone through like Cromwell has become the person who will see Thomas More through to his end, and then the next phase of the story will start. She realized it wasn't the close of a chapter; it was like the close of the book. I think, mm-hmm. um, and so that does give it like a. a decent sense of finality like a shape yeah because and i think this to me is the biggest like departure from my expectations re tommy crommy is that the entire <laughs> uh thomas more sequence in the back quarter of the book he is like actively trying to help thomas more get out of this and thomas more is like you know the way it's depicted, he's like the only person in England who won't swear to this oath and he won't even tell you why. He's like, you know, pleading the fifth to get out of it and he knows he's going to get killed. Fifth Amendment didn't exist yet, so. I was using a, a colloquial idiom, but mm. fair enough. Um, mm. And there's like, Cromwell knows he can't actually, can't actually save him, but he really would love it if he could. And that's just not the guy that I knew before this book. So that's like very interesting. I mean, to your point, like, I don't know that I love him, but I like found my time with him. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other big thread of this book is uh, we've talked a little bit about it is just like all of the women in this book and what power they do and don't have. I found it interesting. So we have, yeah, so we've, we've got, we've got to have, at least a couple of queens or queens to be. I don't yes. know how much agency they have or how they are depicted to the extent that they're depicted at all. Yeah, so we get time. Cromwell becomes a guy who goes to all these queens so Henry doesn't have to. <laughs> um, the, the first, like, 
more developed character we meet is his late wife Liz, who mm-hmm. he meet, whom he loves and he has interesting conversations with and by all accounts it's like a happy marriage. Um there is this little bit where like they're in bed together like going to bed and like talking about the events of the day. Um and she's asking him about this whole like why does Henry want a divorce thing and he's like why do you care about that? Uh and he's like huh um he wonders why should my wife worry about women who have no sons possibly it's something women do spend time imagining what it's like to be each other one can learn from that he thinks and i I was like what okay um but then we do spend a lot of time with Anne and boleyn and we spend time with mary boleyn her sister Mm -hmm. and we spend time with uh queen catherine um and yeah they are certainly like products of their circumstances everyone on everyone who's not Anne Boleyn or King Henry or maybe Tommy Cromie thinks that Anne might be a witch because she's clearly to cause all this trouble she must have entranced the King of England um and Catherine is like what am I supposed to do I've tried to have his kids so many times and now I'm dragged in front of church court and now I'm getting kicked out of my house and mm-hmm. I'm from Spain, I think. But now everyone in England who doesn't like all this church politics likes me, mm-hmm. but he's going to make a whole new church to get rid of me. What about mm-hmm. my daughter? Like she the the fear with Catherine is that she will like raise some army against him, which does not happen. But that's that's the fear. Mm-hmm. Um and then there's this third... she, she's a 10 but she raised an army against me <laughs> uh, and then there's this other character that crops up in like maybe three or four scenes Elizabeth Barton known as the nun of Kent or the holy maid of London um, the mad maid of Kent she was a Catholic nun who wound up getting killed uh, for heresy against the king I think um, she prophesied that he would, if he married Anne, he would die seven months later. Now, this does mm-hmm. not happen, uh-huh. but she does keep speaking about it and does keep invoking like visions of hell and talking to Lucifer and stuff. Listen, you win some, you lose some yeah. with prophecies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sometimes you just got the math wrong. <laughs> uh, and she ultimately, you know, is put to death. She confesses under duress that all that stuff was made up. I don't know if that's supposed to be a true confession or not um, from her perspective. But she is this like outside of the power structure character um, who is also an example of how like women are being treated in this world and in this in this power system, Um, which is like an interesting counterbalance to uh, the way that Thomas More treats his wife and also treats his daughter he treats his wife bad he treats his wife his daughter a little bit better than that um and Cromwell Cromwell does you know in this depiction love everyone that's in his family um except people who would keep him from power I guess eh, yeah. yeah I mean you gotta draw the line somewhere <laughs> um so yeah it's just if Henry like, ever keeps me from power like watch out kid <laughs> um and and yeah, it's I don't know. It's a cool book. 
I feel like I'm I could I could keep taking like individual sallies into different parts of we the could book. do we could do sallies into different parts and you could do like a full plot synopsis it just feels like it's too much book for that especially because we're running a little like a little yeah. long anyway but like if you if you were to all right say I'm some random person up on the street and Whoa. I come up to you and I'm like hey this book will fall you look like you've read it oh god what is <laughs> why should I read it? <laughs> and I just kind of grab you by the shoulders and I shake you until you answer me. What is your, like, wh- why, wh- what would you recommend about this book to somebody else? Why did it resonate with people to the extent that it has? Like, you know, it spawned two sequels. It spawned an adaptation. It, it, you know, by Mantel's own accounting sort of launched her career to a new level that it hadn't been at before. Like, why is it, is it just, you know, being sort of innovative and, and, uh, about how it portrays Tommy Crommy and like being the first person to sort of do that for this particular figure, or is it something else or what? I think it has to be more than that because as she said, if, if the world was really, if the world knew it was hungry for this version of Tommy Crommy, it was it would hungry have happened for Crom- by now. Yeah. If it was like, hungry for Tommy She Crom- came out like Steve Jobs with the iPod and was like, you want this version of Tommy Crommy. You didn't mm-hmm. know you wanted mm-hmm. it, but you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she created a market. Mm-hmm. Um, she's an innovator. Yeah, I don't know what like the like, the creative like Zen player <laughs> whatever version of Tommy Crommy was, but no. <laughs> no. Um, so I think it's a little bit more than that. I do think that stuff like the, how do we revise the treason act to account for like information, uh, technology, how do we navigate, uh, the, the religious and the political, I think, you know, there are plenty of people for whom religion does not feel political. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the history of the world, uh-huh. there are a lot of people for whom religion has served very political purposes. That that's, that's very li- di- that's very diplomatic of you to right? say, and I'm, I'm and I'm I respect the effort that you have made so much that I have no follow up statements. <laughs> you you can tell by the labor that I'm taking, mm-hmm. you know, but I think this book is a really interesting view of those ideas. Like I thought the, the stuff around like, how are these characters going to justify this like man's selfish decision um, using the apparatus of government and a continent's worth of religious people? Mm-hmm. Like how are they going to square that circle and oh, I meant to bring this up earlier. I think the whole thing where like Henry wants a son, Andrew, they do this like little scene where Henry wants to go on like a hunting adventure with some of his friends. And a bunch of the people in the council, like all these these guys whose names I forget, all these guys, they are like, but what if he fell off his what if he fell I mean, off? Just like just it's like James, probably. Yeah. <laughs> like, Many you know, like the, eight of them are named Thomas. Um, yeah, guy, guys back in the 16th century had like five names tops. <laughs> so uh, just guess. And a bunch of them are like, Well, what if he fell off his horse and cracked his neck? What if he, you know, if something happens to him, there is not an heir 
that can easily take the throne. And prior to him and his dad, there, you know, there were all these wars and you can't like that's bad for the country mm-hmm. to, to not have succession. So like that is a philosophy being argued here. And there are like real practical versions of that happening, which I thought were pretty interesting. And then the other thing is like Cromwell's philosophy of um, you you win the world with like kind of like trade and mo- he if Cromwell was playing civilization he would not build up armies he would do a trade economic victory okay probably okay that's um, you know I can respect that and and he is like really uh interested in in how power can amass through wealth and uh he finds other characters kind of small minded for not like getting that picture the same way that he does. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think some of that is, is really compelling. And I do think the writing is really good at like a small, this will be my final point. Like when Thomas Moore, I probably said that three times when Thomas Moore, will be your final point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when Thomas Moore dies at the end of his trial, um, no more. We say this far, no farther. Quoth Tommy Crommy, nevermore. Um, mm. th- the way that Mantell gives you what happened at the end of the trial is, and she didn't invent this type of thing, but it's just like Cromwell says, like on the night of his death, uh, Cromwell is walking around with these guys, and then we get like little mini flashbacks to the end of the trial as Cromwell's thinking about it, and so. The way that she is allowed, the way she allows herself to kind of jump around in events and perspectives through Cromwell's memory um, and through his own reflection just gives the book a very distinct character that is tied to him. Um, It's not just that like, it's not just, oh, that was an interesting performance of that character in a movie that's about other stuff. Like she really invested in this guy. Uh, and that in and of itself for me like sets it apart from other historical fiction that I've read. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I would say to that stranger on the street. <laughs> <laughs> I would also say that she gave him... You got me because I forgot I had set up this fictional scaffold for you to climb and then... <laughs> she gave him... Uh, she gave Cromwell like the memory palace from uh, uh, the Benedict Cumberbatch show. Mm-hmm. What was that Sherlock? called? Sherlock. Um, Doctor Strange? Multiple times she says he uses his memory technique that he learned in Italy mm-hmm. uh, where he is like, you know, memorized visual images of things um, and it allows him to like think through. But also it causes him pain because he can't unsee like his dying wife, you know, what? Like the curse okay. of the memory palace. All right. Um, I just laughed every time she called it his memory technique that he his learned memory in Italy. Technique that he learned in Italy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, cool book. Check it out. If you like history and not wolves, cause there's no wolves. In this there's book. no wolves again. I have to, I must protest. <laughs> uh, okay. Andrew, thanks for, <laughs> Ride in the River Thames with me. That's it. Bye. Um, And uh, if you, the listener, have any thoughts about uh, the show, The Tudors, 
You can send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter at overduepod. Thanks to Morgane, Jennifer, Jason, Pawan, Ellie, Jeremy, Gina, Laney, Yvonne, and many more for reaching out in the last week or two. We've had some folks joining us um, who heard us on Ann Bogle's podcast. We've had folks reaching out in response to our recent episodes about Expectant Father and Red Rising. Thanks, everybody, who are listening and telling us that you like the show. It's really cool. And thanks especially to the people who acknowledge that Craig is copying me. And I don't have any other follow-ups. Just thank you for seeing me. I feel seen. Yeah, I, I do think... <laughs> not the copying Susanna, thing. Susanna listened to that episode and she's like, you know, it's not often where I can tell that Craig is like audibly actually annoyed with you, but I you got there in this episode. <laughs> that's an accomplishment you should be proud i know i know usually it's like it's sort of a put on like part of a bit but i think somebody one of our very nice listeners i i think like either in our discord or or tweeted at you or something and just said like you know you've also been a dad all these years and like Mm -hmm. in a in a moment where we're talking about me becoming a dad like it's Mm -hmm. like worth being like hey andrew you're a good dad oh hey thanks so that's what i wanted to say thank Um, you and yeah, I'm copying you. I'm stealing mm-hmm. everything that you've done. Yeah. Um, no, I know. You don't have to tell me that part. But thank you for telling me the other part that I didn't yeah. know. Well, you should. I hope you know it every day. Um, <laughs> thanks to Nick Larandis who composed our theme song. Andrew, Craig, folks want to know. Craig regularly comes over to my house and makes my son laugh so hard that he falls down on the ground because he can't stand up anymore. So, so like, Craig's doing pretty good, too. I love hanging out with you guys. Um, Andrew, <laughs> folks want to know more about the show. Where do they go? They go to OverduePodcast.com. There's our internet website up there. We have books, links to the books that we have read and the ones that we are going to read. Click those. You buy the book from bookshop.org. We get a cut. You get a book. Your local independent bookseller gets some business that I'm sure that they need. Um, Patreon.com slash OverduePod is our Patreon project. Get bonus episodes early. Uh, dip into our current long read project right now. That is Goosebumps, which is a, a bridge to Spooktober that we are building out of R.L. Stein's uh, Goosebumps <laughs> books. Some of the original, most formative versions of, of those books. Yeah. Uh, uh, next week, I am going to be reading. No, wait. No, ne- next week, we have all read uh, Our Man in Havana all by of Graham us. Green. All of us have read it. Uh, but uh, Anne Bogle from uh, What Should I Read Next has reciprocated, has appeared on our podcast. Yeah. And uh, read Our Man in Havana with us. We recorded this a couple of days ago, and it was a fun episode. So I'm looking forward to to putting it out there. Um, and I think has a much, like, one, she has just, like, such a soothing, like, podcast voice. Oh, boy. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's a nice energy. That really, like, I'm just out here, and I sound the way that I do, and I can't <laughs> <laughs> But no, it was, it was a super fun conversation. Uh, again, if you haven't listened to our episode, uh, our interview with her on what should I read next, go listen to that because yeah. that was also fun. Yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, our August schedule should be up uh, shortly. I can, I can give it to you to this, with so. one exception if you want it. Uh, sure. Give it to me. Uh, so Our Man in Havana, The Cat Who Saved Books by Sasuke Natsukawa. Uh, Wittgenstein's Mistress by David Markson, My Brilliant Friend by Elena Ferrante, Our Patron's Choice episode, uh, The Airport Boy that we picked this month, John Grisham with The Firm, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have a pl- we're we're planning our bonus episode for August. We don't have the book picked, so keep an eye on social media for that. Yep, 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 yep. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for listening. And until we talk to you next time, please try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.